Welcome to Phantom Astronaut. I'd like to thank all of the Phantom Astronaut patrons for supporting the show. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit phantomastronaut.com for all the different ways that you can help us continue to create. Today we'll be discussing the industry of death with guest professor of mortuary science, Ben Schmidt. So Ben, why don't you tell me what is the field of mortuary science? Okay, that's a pretty good question, actually, um, because it is one of the things that we have as funeral directors is we really have to be jack of all trades or Jill of all trades, you know, depending. Um, and so we have a lot of um, on the on the one side, what I will refer to as front of the house, right? That would be the people who are meeting with families. We need to have a certain level of grief counseling, psychology, um, you know, sales, uh, merchandise knowledge, uh, an understanding of how our federal and local governments work, because we do have a lot of administrative jobs. And then there's a bunch of creativity that goes along with that, where it's like families are going to be looking for um personalized services or to work in conjunction with that, whatever their religious point of view is or or something like that right but then on the um the back of the house right those of us who are embalmers right i've done both i'm licensed in illinois and we have a combined license not all states have that some have the funeral directing license separate from the embalming so i've done plenty of both but quite frankly, I am an embalmer at heart. And the reason why is because of all the science that goes along with it. So as an embalmer, you need to understand chemistry, uh, biology, um, uh, anatomy, of course, um, and physics, actually, uh, to a certain degree. When And pathology is another thing that we study quite a bit, too. So um, that is mortuary science. It's kind of a little bit of all those little things that... Uh, we put together, and um, that's what our role in society is. Very interesting. Uh, a couple of years ago, my family uh, lost somebody, and um, you know, at at the expense of being a bit morbid, um, it was a it was a bit of a panic. I got a telephone call, and I had to drive up uh, from one neighborhood to the other neighborhood very quickly, and. Um, you know, when we, when, when I got here, you know, this person had passed away. So, um, you know, at that point or a little bit before, you know, I told the other person, uh, before I left, like, you know, call 911, you know, get somebody out here to, you know, make, uh, to make sure that there's no way to, um, you know, to save this person or, you know, whatever. And, uh, so by the time that I got up here, it was only a short wait before, um, you had police come and, you know, quickly after them, um, uh, I'm guessing a mortician or, or someone who assists a mortician uh, came and they came by themselves. And um, and so I had to very carefully um, remove the jewelry from this person yeah. and and help to lift this person's uh, body onto um what looked to me to be a gurney. I don't know if that's still the proper term, uh, you know, for it, but, um, you know, the, it was, it was unusual because the, uh, I, I, I don't want to get too much into, like I said, the, the tactile aspects of it, but, um, 
Yeah, sure. You you don't you shouldn't have. To. Yeah, it didn't feel. Um, you're going. It's it 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 is unusual. Um, typically in cases like that, the coroners will handle that, or assisted mm -hmm. by the funeral directors. Like generally, in cases such as that, you're not necessarily going to be called to do that as a family member. So I'm sorry if that was traumatic for you. Oh, it wasn't wasn't so uh so bad i mean it was a in its own way it was a little um in its own way it was a little comforting it was a little bit uh it was a little nice it had a um you know there was a i i think if more people participated more actively in the understanding recognition proximity to death because death is a natural part of of everyone's uh existence on earth i think if people had more confrontation with it there'd probably be a little bit less fear of it it's um you know it's a very like you said to many people it's traumatizing but um i think it it also has the capacity to um lend a bit of closure right and i think maybe some of that it was illustrated back with the um I mean, the tradition still persists, but it was more prevalent, you know, in the uh, the 19th and early 20th century of, you know, having the wake where the, you know, all the friends and family would, you know, sit with the um, uh, sit with the deceased uh, physically for, a, you know, a very long period of time. And, you know, I, I've been to a couple of funeral services and, you know, you you, you pay your respects very quickly and, and kind of move on and the the physical aspect of it. Um, is minimized i don't know what your perspective is on that though yeah well first of all i agree with you um and what we have to remember um is that culturally um in particular uh caucasian christians are some of the ones that are the furthest removed from death right because we have created in any, many ways this um culture where you know the um Funeral director shows up, we'll see a church, you know, the church itself oftentimes designs the service and the family is just kind of along for the ride, if that makes sense, right? But we've definitely seen a shift back in the other direction. You know, we have a growth of home funerals, we have um, the green burial mov movement, and a lot of that stuff is um, incorporate or bringing back that sort of like hands-on experience for lack of a better term but you know i've had um the privilege of taking part of many uh hispanic families and what you described happened to you during the the body transfer they'll do that stuff voluntarily actually as their funeral director you can almost expect it right is if you arrive at the house that somebody is going to help you and then on your way out you're the family's going to interact with the person who had died um hindu culture actually um part of it uh part of an important part of the ceremony is they are cremated at the end and the um family will actually start the crematory so there are um cultures out there that are still very hands-on with their loved ones but it, it really is the um the white sort of christian um uh ideal to to do this because like a lot of the hispanics were catholic right but they still had a lot of that sort of just interaction with their loved one and the importance of doing that stuff so yeah but it's it's coming back i think that um you know and this is one of the reasons why i was you know willing to do your podcast was i think that there's more 
information available to people um, outside of just what their funeral director will tell them. So then as kind of a, a, a result of that, people um, watch YouTube videos or they um, uh, actually interact with the influencers in my community and things like that. And so they get their questions answered and then they in turn bring that stuff to their funeral directors or they can incorporate their own funeral. So, uh, but that's what we as like the Gen Xers and millennials do, right? Like we want to be able to do something. That's how we operate. And so um, it's no surprise that funerals are are now one of those things. I recently discovered a uh, profession. I'm not sure how prevalent it is in, in other areas, but I've started to see it pop up more here in the Los Angeles area. It's a, a job called death doula. Have you heard of this? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, and yes, you are right that the L.A. area is kind of the hotbed or at least the West Coast, I would say, is the hotbed. But yeah, so as I understand it, it's, it's kind of a informal training as of right now to sort of help people with their end of life and uh, their family with sort of transitioning to the funeral home is as near as I can tell that's a loose description I know that different organizations define it differently well I think the way that I would probably define it and I haven't used one I've, I've just been fascinated by it uh, because from my experiences of uh, of you know losing people the first time that you are confronted with the non-emotional, well, I don't want to say non-emotional, but I'll say the, the, the secular logistics of death. Um, and you are the one who, who bears responsibility for performing them. I, I think it's a bit overwhelming. I, I think people understand the, the human aspect of death we understand you know the the grief of losing someone not being able to see them again we don't really understand that death triggers an onerous legal process <laughs> that must be yes. dealt with while you are dealing with your emotional loss right. and right. i think that the uh, the death doulas that I've, I've seen advertised help you to uh help the living to prepare for um making sure that they're not or making sure they're leaving the minimum amount of loose ends for their loved ones when they pass. Um, I mean, how, how did it, how did it become that way? If you know the history of it, I, I mean, I can't imagine that there was, there was this much um, red tape in 1900 around, uh, around passing away. Well, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, right. And that was kind of that front of the house stuff that I'm talking about, because your funeral director can actually help you think about a lot of this stuff, too, if you come in and make funeral arrangements beforehand. Right. But yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I guess, as we grew to own more property, and then we have the entire bureaucracy of your state and federal governments. And then, you know, we, like as a society, just leave a bigger, bigger paper trail as we go. So we have all of these loose ends and, you know, you, you're you doing things all the time that are so, so organic with the administrative side of your life that you don't really realize it until after you're dead, right? You know, I was thinking about this yesterday. I'm like, I think I got like a 401k with like $1,000 in it from a job I had 10 years ago. Like, I better like remember that or look into it and, and see. So um 
Yeah, and uh, you have to have death certificates for just about everything. But again, you know, your funeral director can help you with that stuff. I mean, we this is our job to figure out how to fill out the paperwork and do it correctly for you to make sure that you can claim any benefits that you might be um, needing and things like that. So I think that the the process of death also, especially if it's sudden or or surprising, uh, and I think many deaths probably are. I I've known people who passed away who had you know long fights with illness and and things, and you know you have a long window to prepare. But you know I've also known people who passed away uh, suddenly. Um, you know, be that through suicide or be that through you know uh, some kind of series of unfortunate accidents that you know compound either into a medical or or you know external sort of physical. Uh, accident which uh which ended their life and uh this one person that we were talking about in the beginning for example you know they passed away suddenly and um you know they weren't in the in the best of health but there wasn't anything that they were um triaging on a regular basis right so it was just you know the, their heart gave out and they they passed away and one of the first things uh you know we have those horrible phone calls you make right where you're calling all these other relatives and you say, well, you know, uh, blah, 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 passed away. And, you know, some of them, you know, are, are very understanding. And then some of them go, well, what did the autopsy say that it was? What did the autopsy say? And then you have to politely explain, they don't really do an autopsy if it's not, <laughs> if they're not suspecting. Right. That's true. Maybe, For your you listeners know. out there, most of the time when people die, there isn't an autopsy, right? There typically is something in someone's medical history that will will describe their, their cause of death, right? The, oh, okay. Well, they have a history of that kind of thing. Sorry, go on. But yeah, you're right about that. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's kind of, you know, part and parcel to that. So this idea that there's a um i think they get it you know from watching uh television shows and things they think that there's just always going to be an autopsy and there's always going to be all this you know treatment that happens that you know you might see on, on an episode of csi but i mean that's not death is very common and you know it, it's it's just something that that tends to happen and on top of that um you you just mentioned about the medical records and let's say that somebody passes away and they don't have uh they haven't seen the doctor in six seven eight months um one thing that i learned is that if you don't have a designated primary care physician um like this again this example of this one person they they had been going to physical therapy because they had been in a car accident two or three years prior and were still recovering from that uh but this person had not seen a primary care physician within that span of time uh they'd been using telemedicine or you know other other services so without having that primary care physician uh in our local area we did actually have to go through um a complicated process to uh verify the medical history of you know that individual because they wouldn't take the the physical therapist you know has a resident doctor and, and everything so um how much of uh, our our funeral director was not particularly interactive i'm i'm not going to you know i don't know what's from what's what's normal and what's not but does a does a funeral director typically um can they help you to navigate those sorts of situations too or uh where do you find information if you can't get it from your funeral director 
So, so as far as um, trying to help you gather medical records, mm. um, you know what, that really isn't part of our scope typically. I mean, what we can do is the, the most important job that we can do is support you during that time. So if you say, mm. well, I want to have this person cremated. Okay, well, we can't do anything about a cremation until the doctors have had their say, right? So so that would be typically more our um our end of the job is just to make sure that your person has a secure place that they're taking care of and mm -hmm. that you're meeting or that we're helping you to meet whatever ceremony. And then of course, um, when, and working with the, the medical staff as well, right. You know, because we do have to have on our death certificates, which you probably know a doctor's signature and the cause of death and, and things like that. We are responsible for um, filtering those to make sure that those are acceptable. But as far as like, helping people get their medical records. No, I, quite frankly, if somebody asked me that, like you just did, I'm not even sure where to start, <laughs> you know? So, um, but again, something to kind of keep in mind for all those people listening out there is good advice. Have yourself a point of contact. Um, mm -hmm. It will make it a lot easier on your family when the time comes, if you do, unfortunately, for lack of a better term, die suddenly, which it does happen. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, the whole the whole process is is very interesting to me so when we went down to our funeral director and this was another kind of a uh, a conflict that that arose and maybe this is a little bit more inside of your wheelhouse and i'm sorry if i'm i'm making this sound like it's oh this is a little bit of a therapy session but it's it's interesting to me and i'm curious <laughs> about like a broad sense of of what's expected because people just don't know it. So that's true. Uh, that's a great yeah. point. We're a good resource for a lot of things, but we can't do everything. That's right. For sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I went down to, to the funeral director. They asked us what kind of ceremony that we wanted. And, uh, you know, we told them uh, secular and uh, what that actually became a, a, a real point of contention uh, between ourselves and the funeral uh, funeral home, because uh, I guess there was some, piece of documentation i'm not sure if it was like an antiquated birth certificate or or some other thing that they that they'd found that you know had listed that this particular person was episcopalian and i don't know how old that document was but it certainly wasn't um recent and uh you know this person did not want to have a religious ceremony so you know we had to fight you know tooth and nail and we had to have a, a lawyer you know sign forms and things that uh, you know, and the funeral director was kind of begrudgingly do it. And it, it, we just got the sense through the whole thing that, that, that the funeral director felt like we were trying to, to force something against the wishes of the deceased. And I'm not sure how often conflicts like that arise, if ever in your experience, uh, both teaching and in the professional world. So there's plenty of conflicts amongst family members as far, as far as what the ceremony is going to be like. But I, I'm honestly a little surprised that your funeral director um, would give you a hard time about what it was. Because, I mean, quite frankly, there's a lot of people who are lapsed whatevers, right? And it changes, you know, end of life things. And then, you know, the other thing is that funerals are actually for the living, not for the dead, right? Because you are the ones that are grieving. You want to be able to observe their life a certain way. And then, you know, when you're a funeral director and you're working with a particular community, like, you know, Chicago obviously is like the largest Catholic community. 
And so did a lot of Catholic funerals. But a lot of times people would come in and say, we haven't been in church in years. We don't really know what to do. Um, can you help us? I don't work for the Catholic Church. But it is my responsibility to say, if you are looking for traditional Catholic ceremonies, these are the guidelines. But I will do whatever it is that you would like to do in your version of that, right? So to have a funeral director be so adamant that like, oh, we found this one thing that said that they were Episcopalian and we don't want to violate that. And, you know, in particular, you can have something that's called a celebrant. And, you know, their secular funerals are common, especially in California, where you can say to the celebrant, like, okay, well, if you want to add a little, if we could add a little bit of religious stuff into it for the people in the audience. I mean, I was a celebrant for my own grandfather's funeral. And my dad said, you know, make sure that you have a couple of Bible verses or whatever, because there are going to be some, you know, um, more conservative people in the audience who need to hear that sort of thing. So um, like perfectly fine with that, you know, so it's like a lot of funerals are adaptable. So I would say that I'm really surprised to hear that, like, the funeral director fought you so much on it. I mean, obviously conflicting religions within a family is one thing, but like a funeral director is supposed to be impartial in that sense. Mm, it's interesting. Well, he's a, a much, much older man. I don't know. Maybe he came from a different time. Um, again, I don't, I don't fault them. Maybe they were worried about liability or, or something that maybe they thought Could another be. family member would sue them or who knows. We're a very litigious society. So there's a, there could be a myriad of reasons, That's but true. um you know, uh, you mentioned earlier that there's a, a wider array of, um, I don't know what you call this. What do you call, what, what do you call the difference with the, the category of like burial, cremation? What is there an industry term for those uh, final forms of? Yeah, disposition is what we call it. Disposition. Yep. Yep. So uh, you'd mentioned earlier that there was uh, an expanding array of disposition options. Yes. What are some of the ones that people may not be aware of? Okay, that's a great question. And um, I would say there are two that are kind of like really at the growth where we're seeing a lot of growth, right? Um, so we, and then we, I'll talk about a third one that's actually the, one of the oldest ways we've ever done it as humans, but it's coming back in popularity and that would be green burial. All right. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as new types of disposition, we have uh, alkaline hydrolysis, which is actually legal, I think, in 35 states, but only about a dozen states have it available to them, right? I know it's not popular in California because it uses water, and with the whole, like, water shortage thing, like, it's really not taking off right now, right? But here in Illinois, there's actually three or four different places that offer it, right? Because we have a giant lake that we can just grab water from. But essentially what we have in alkaline hydrolysis is you may hear it called flameless cremation or also water cremation or also resumation. Those are the kind of three terms for it. Um, and essentially what it is, is it's like an accelerated decomposition pro process. You know, one of the most important things that drives a decomposition reaction is water. Um, and so by adding a lot of water, plus the, the the alkalinity into it will drive the decomposition process. So essentially what you have an accelerated decomposition process in about a work day, a person is reduced to bones and then they have to be processed and um, then returned to the family. It's actually cleaner. It's considered to be uh, more environmentally friendly, the alkaline hydrolysis is. And then we have another one too that's happening. 
um, that is called natural organic reduction, also known as uh, terramation. Um, this is just le recently legalized in California. It started really in the Pacific Northwest. There is a woman, her name is Katrina Spade, and she came up with this concept of, you know, basically accelerated decomposition in um, dirt. So there are a couple of different versions of it. Herland Forest up in Washington State is one. And then we have uh, my good friends, the um, uh, Return Home, N-O-R, um, Katie and Bree. And what they do is they put a person in, in what they call a mix or for lack of a better term of mix. And it has a lot of bacteria and other organic material in it. And essentially it gets everything all jazzed up and decomposes you faster. Now I forget how long that process takes, but I know that it's, you know, like several weeks because part of their um, services they offer is that you can actually like visit your loved one while they're in the vessel that they use for the decomposing. So it's kind of like a temporary grave for lack of a better word. But then at the end, people get essentially um their their the dirt of their person yet uh, people refer to it as human composting but i don't really like that term i prefer organic reduction or um terramation are, are probably better for that so those are kind of the two big ones that we see um they're really taking off. In fact, uh, natural organic reduction is on the bill here in Illinois. It's already passed in our state Senate and it's up for vote in our state house. So I, I and I do believe that we will pass it. So, um, yeah, those are kind of the new ones that are happening there. Um, you see some fake ones on the Internet, right? Like probably the biggest one is the um, the tree pods. If anybody ever sees. I have seen that. I have seen that. That's so a fake one. It's fake. Yes. It's actually uh, was an art installation by a company called Capsula Mundi was how that got started. And they have urns and stuff for sale. Um, but they, you know, nobody is balling grandma up into underneath a tree. And not only that, but in that case, decomposition creates a lot of pH variance and heat. So there would be a lot of damage to a sapling at the bottom of a tree. Like it would, the like even if you grow a tree over your loved one who is buried, like typically you have to wait like at least a year or so, maybe two, to the soil to even balance itself out to the point where a tree can grow again because like it's so disruptive to the 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 environment that like a little sapling would need. So um, that's a fake one. And then maybe one of my other favorite ones that we've seen thanks to the AI is the uh, woman encased in polyresin, right? So like, did you see that one before? It's like no, a grandma encased in there. Um, yeah, they, they have like a fake, they say they turn their grandma into a coffee table and it's like half a grandma and she's like cooking it. Like, uh, like I, you know, I don't understand the stuff that people believe on the internet. Like nobody's cutting your grandma in half, you know, none of that stuff. And, um, it, it, it wouldn't work out very well anyway, if you were to, I, I blame, um, probably Damien Hirsch for that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You know, his, uh, his sculptures with the, the, the slices and things yeah. that, you yeah. know, I think that's probably probably plays a little bit. Pop culture, I'm sure, has always played a an, an interesting complementary relationship to um to your industry and to you know the way that we conceive of uh, preserving our our loved ones. I mean, there was a big sure. thing in the '90s about the you know the cryogenics. Oh yeah, right. Which uh, you know, I, I think some people actually had it done. I can't imagine that they thought they would really be resurrected but 
So, okay, so I love the cryonics people, first of all, all right? I actually did a podcast. I have a, one of my own podcasts. It's called the Funeral Science Podcast, and I did an episode on cryonics. And those people are very transparent. The two that I talked to, there's one in Michigan and one in Arizona that are considered to be like the legit ones. Number one, the one in Michigan who does what they call perfusion, which is the basically embalming procedure with their their preservative chemicals is an embalmer. She is a licensed embalmer in Michigan and went to mortuary school. So it's like, yeah, here we go. Love that. And then the other thing is, is they tell you right up front, we don't know if this is going to work, right? So they're really not con artists at all. They just think this is the best way that if we are going to be able to revive somebody, this is how it's going to have to work because they have, you know, you, cryonics with embryos and cryonics with organs. So they say, okay, well, this is what we can do for the full scale thing. So, but it's tough after you're, you're dead because you do start to decompose right away. So like, if you're actually going to do the cryonic uh, preservation, like you got to be pretty much on their table when you die if it's if it's even going to work effectively um to set you up for the future so there's a lot of questions out there about that but um you know maybe the most famous person who's ever undergone uh uh cryonics was ted williams and only his head was preserved so one thing that i just learned from you was that was the 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 thing about the variance in the ph and you know how it changes the soil composition makes it somewhat inhospitable so that really dispelled something that i think is is very prevalent in storytelling they did it in i think uh i think it was casino remember they they dragged joe pesci out into the into the cornfield and you know yeah. had them dig their graves and yeah. I think there was another uh, thing that was a, there was a Stephen King movie. It starred Johnny Depp. I forgot the name of it, but yeah, he got away with the murder by um, burying his wife and the lover in the garden and then planting corn over them. And, yeah. The uh, secret garden is the name of that. Yeah. The, <laughs> and, like, and so basically what I know now is that if I go to somebody's, uh, somebody's house and I see a roughly human sized patch of dead grass, I should be a bit suspicious. <laughs> yeah. If that's the, if it's not looking too healthy right there, <laughs> then there's a good chance, right? That... <laughs> so uh, how much do you know about the history of uh, of mortuary science? And when did this start to become um, something that was seriously studied? Because I, I know, obviously, everybody knows about the Egyptian pharaohs. We know about, you know, tombs of certain Roman emperors and things, but it, it didn't seem like it's something... Um, that this the way that we think of having a uh, an end of life disposition doesn't seem like it's something that was within the reach of the common person for a very long time and even when it became within the reach of the common person i don't think that it was um as well understood as your you know, obviously speaking of today. So walk me through that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You got the right guy because I have taught funeral service history for the better part of a decade. All right. So what what we got to take a look at first is that um, the embalming that Egyptians do and what we do today, or even the trajectory that kind of started it are two completely thing, different things, right? The Egyptians did spiritual embalmers. The embalmers that were the Egyptian embalmers were kind of, I'm going to say pseudo-slaves, or at least they were part of a religious cult 
whose main purpose was to preserve a body so the soul could complete a spiritual journey, right? And it was a lot of addition of salt. Actually, there's a um, guy, I, his name escapes me for the time being, but he actually did mummify somebody recently using all of the techniques that they use, only their tools and just a ton of salt. I forget what his number was, but it was like 200 pounds, right? So it's completely different. In fact, the French have a word for what we call, or what we do now is called thanopraxy. I actually prefer this because contemporary arterial embalming is completely different than Egyptian embalming, right? All right, so where did it come from? Well, it all kind of started out with um, in the around the Renaissance and the um, the Enlightenment, right? We had this sort of explosion of scientific discovery because the veil in many ways by the church was lifted. So um, we had people like Leonardo da Vinci, for example. Um, there's these guys called the Hunter Brothers, uh, you know, a, a bunch of different, um, what they all ultimately were, were anatomists and or doctors that started, that recognized that they needed to preserve their cadavers for better study. So what happened was, is when it came to the arterial injection, those were the guys who actually started embalming, was for the purpose of cadaver preservation, all right? Um, now, keep in mind, as you already mentioned, for tens of thousands of years, humans have done their own religious ceremonies, right? So this is really where we get into contemporary funeral service. Now, fast forward to... Um, the Civil War era, all right? And we had a guy, his name was Colonel uh, E. Ellsworth, and he was the first ranking casualty of the Civil War. And there was a guy, his name is Dr. Thomas Holmes. He's considered to be the father of American embalming and probably, I would say, for funeral embalming in general. He embalmed Colonel Ellsworth and brought him to Washington, D.C. and put him on display for everybody who was interested doctors, senators, representatives, and most importantly, Abraham Lincoln, all right? Abraham Lincoln was probably one of the biggest proponents of embalming. In fact, he had his sons embalmed, right? He had his son embalmed. Um, and then, of course, Abraham Lincoln himself was embalmed. And he was shown that he made like 18 stops between Washington, D.C. and Springfield, where he's buried. And you know, I forget what the exact number is, but we, if to say it's 2 million people, like that's probably not way off, that actually saw him embalm. And that created the spread of embalming in the United States. But to that point, it was only doctors that were doing it, right? Is because a lot of the embalming came from these doctors who were battlefield surgeons that would also offer embalming as one of their services to the soldiers. So you would kind of see, you know, the, the people in the South didn't really do it that much because they were basically fighting the war in their own backyard. They didn't need this service. But if you were somebody who like died in North Carolina and you were going back to Maine, well, you know, we, you wanted to have your body shipped home. And um, some of that embalming things were um, done in order to allow uniform train shipping and like a bunch of other stuff. But that's kind of how it pro proliferated. Now for the actual study itself, right? Um, the, the people who taught embalming to other embalmers at the time were chemical fluid salespeople. So um, they would travel around and they would say, you know, okay, well, I have these caskets, maybe, um, depending on where you were, maybe your local cabinet maker did your caskets. Um, and um, 
so they would teach them embalming and they would, you know, they would explain to them how to do it. And then they would demonstrate it if they could. And that's kind of how it proliferated. And then the schools kind of just started doing it. Um, like the, the college that I went to um, originated from a guy named Carl Barnes and it was Carl Barnes School of Anatomy. And it was literally an embalming school and people would come for six weeks for a clinic and they would learn how to do all these different techniques. And there was a lot of people through history um, during that time that were doing restorative art techniques and that were um, doing all that stuff. So slowly but surely, um, the chemical companies started opening schools. Uh, eventually, it was also uh, picked up by, um, you know, public schools to be able to offer it as like an associate's degree, which is what most schools offer it as now. And so that's how it became mortuary science, so to speak, was that we put all under one roof, all the embalming, the restorative art and all the funeral directing stuff, the merchandising, things like that, and, and brought it all together under one discipline, I guess you could call it interesting um something that that makes me think of is and i i have no clue about the answer to this question i don't even have a guess so this is going to be really informative information i think for the audience as well everything eventually decays and when we talk about the preservation methods and uh and, and chemicals and things that are involved in it combined with the um, construction of something like a casket i think there it's a pleasant i think there's a pleasant thing where people see the casket go in the ground and and you know gets covered and people visit the the burial site realistically speaking though uh if you don't mind answering this how long does that state really last so that is a really tough thing to answer because you know we have all sorts of uh, incidences through like modern contemporary embalming for example where the where people are disinterred right for to be moved or whatever and they're still in really good shape having been bombed 20 years earlier, 30 years earlier, 40 years earlier, and stuff like that. So I don't know, but you are right. Everything decomposes, it is, it decomposes, it is the way of nature, right? So eventually all of those things will break down just slower. And again, like you mentioned, the casket, it depends on what the casket material is. A metal casket is going to decompose slower than a wood one would. Um, you know, one thing that people don't always know about either is a lot of times in your cemeteries and memorial parks, they require what's called a vault, which is an outer, an outer barrel container. And essentially its purpose is to maintain the integrity of the grave itself. That's why you don't look at cemeteries and see like the, the ground is all like, messed up and stuff from the cave-in of the dirt underneath there so it creates a uniformity and of course that's going to contribute to the um longevity of the person inside but if we're talking about something like green burial or or whatever um you know that would be a normal decomposition rate but that again is going to change based on water content of the person the water content around them um and that kind of thing so it's 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 variance that's for sure hmm. And connected to that in a little bit more of a uh, mythological way, I'm sure that, you know, you've had conversations about this in the past between, you know, other uh, people involved in mortuary science, but there's a history 
not just in the Catholic Church, but you know, also in in secular traditions and and other places of what's called incorruptibility, uh-huh. where uh, you know these these saints or or whatever they they've been they they defy decomposition, and I think this also was true at least for a time of um, uh, Lenin's uh, body and the uh, the former Soviet Union. They had a mythology about that that Lenin's body was not decomposing, so it was somewhat incorruptible, even though that wasn't you know a Catholic based thing. What do you think, um, what circumstances scientifically do you think create that, ignoring the spiritual aspect? We're not even going to touch the spiritual aspect. (laughs) Okay, so a couple of things there. Again, listen to my podcast, the Funeral Science Podcast. I I did one on Lenin. Number one, Lenin is involved. Right, he there is a very specific mix that they talked about. There's a good book called the the uh, uh, Lenin's Embalmers, and one of the authors is um, his dad was one of the original embalmers, and then um, he kind of took over for him because he kind of grew up embalming Lenin over and over again. It's really kind of an interesting story. Um, but yes, and if you really want to get frustrated with government bureaucracy, that's the book for you, right? Um, so essentially, he's not incorruptible. He's actually quite corrupt uh, when, when it comes to his body. Now, the as far as the incorruptible that we have, like of the, for canonization of states, uh, saints, sorry. Again, podcast episode i recently did one over sister Mero, mary wilhelmina lancaster the woman that they disinterred in missouri and is considered to be quote-unquote incorrupt right but here's what i want people to remember um is that dry arid conditions generally will result in what we think of as incorruptible right because what's important and this is why the egyptians use so much salt is the is water all right. Um, water, when water comes into contact with basically every chemical, carbohydrate, um, proteins, uh, lipids, it destroys it. This is a process called hydrolysis. It is the driving engine of decomposition. So anytime we have a lack of um, water, um, we are going to have a better preservation. Sister Wilhelmina, if I remember correctly, Um, was like a person who died very slowly on hospice. When people are in hospice, that is the end of life care. They are generally purposely dehydrated. So this woman probably already died with a little bit less of water in her body and then preserved it. Um, And on top of that, just because somebody isn't green bloated and melting away from their skeleton does not mean that they are incorrupt right? To me, this is also a form of decomposition. It's just not as fast. So it's pretty much impossible for somebody to be incorrupt unless they have been, you know, put under certain specific um, instances. And while I was looking at Sister Wilhelmina's story, it turns out that a lot of the instances that they were calling people incorrupt were actually fabrications by the church to get someone canonized, or, you know, there's uh, there was other things that were involved in there. Sister Wilhelmina, I do believe by looking at her pictures that she's been cosmetized for viewing of the public. You know, there's all sorts of things. Even if they say that she's not embalmed, it's it's very possible that her body is, is in really pretty good condition, right? Because we have a lot of instances of natural mummification. 
So to me, that would be kind of where that quote unquote incorruptible, it's just not corrupt as bad as, as the rest of us, what it comes down to, um, as near as I can tell. That leads me to another thing that goes a little bit more into the esoteric, but I think has a, a scientific basis. Uh, I was in Bulgaria, the Black Sea, probably about 10 years ago. And uh, they had recently, I don't know if they were doing construction or an excavation for some you know, archaeological purpose, but they discovered what um, are colloquially a vampire graveyard, right? Where they have the the bricks in the mouth and you know, stakes through the through the chest and and things like sure. that that yep. you know are part of some um Eastern European mythologies and practices regarding regarding that. Now, obviously, since this was a, a, a burial site, the people that um participated in that community, you know, they know what death looks like because they they deal with it there must have been you know maybe 100 200 people uh for every one of these vampires what scientifically could lead a people who have a a normal burial practice to believe that something unearthly like vampirism was affecting a corpse yeah i don't know other than rumors that kind of thing i mean it's it's kind of the same thing as the Salem witch trials, you know, like just kind of religious fervor of somebody, in my opinion, it just is simply somebody was like, okay, we heard a rumor. Cause as far as I understand, some of those vampire cemeteries, people are actually disinterred and then those things done to mm-hmm. them. Right. So that would, to me, that would be the, the, the description I, you know. So you feel there's more of a, because one, one camp says that there are certain aspects of decomposition that, you know, lead certain things to be more pronounced like the way that skin retracts and things but you think it's more of a social component yeah absolutely i 100 because it, here's the thing that people cannot quantify locally and that is the rates of decomposition right it's it, seriously it's impossible to track it you know we have universities that are doing this under certain conditions all the time and even there's so many variances because everybody's death is different our chemical makeup is different the conditions are different you know so to be able to say well this person looks like they might be a a vampire like i i don't know you know it's just it's impossible to tell because decomposition varies so much even when we teach it we're like here are all these different things um and people like even now you know, you may have a faster decomposition because of the medical the medical treatment you were receiving, right? So all these different things contribute to the way that we look when we when we die. Interesting. So, I mean, what what drew you into this as a profession? It's um, I'm not going to say that it's unusual. Obviously, you know, it's a necessary and long part of uh, many communities, but I think that. A lot of people have a, a natural aversion to that proximity to death. Um, what what drew you into it? Yeah, you know what? It's weird. Like a lot of times when people ask this question, they, you know, I was called to it or I've always been interested into it. But that's really not the case with me. So 
I was in the Navy. And um, during that time, I um, was working to a, a dual bachelor's degree, one in psychology and one in natural science and mathematics. When I completed that, um, what I wanted to do was become a science teacher. Um, but it was 2008. It wasn't really like there wasn't a lot of going on with schools and hiring like that. So it wasn't necessarily the best trajectory for me at the time. What I was doing is that I was um, working as a case manager for um, children with um, handicaps, right? Autistic kids, um, you know, developmental disorders, that kind of thing. And I, you know, I was like, man, this is a lot. Let me find a job that's a lot easier. <laughs> and so actually, like a lot of times people are like, you should do this. You should be a funeral director. You seem to have a lot of the interests that funeral directors have. Now, I don't consider myself a, a morbid person or that kind of thing. Um, obviously, you could see me, your listeners can't, but I'm not surrounded by a bunch of like goth looking stuff or, or whatever, you know. Um, I've been pretty serious on this podcast, but I'm actually pretty goofy if people ever <laughs> go to find me. But um, uh, so I started kind of looking around at different options as far as what I could do. I looked at optometry school. I looked at law school. But one of the places that I um, looked at was there is a college here in Chicago. It's 110 years old. It's called Warsham College of Mortuary Science. It's one of the most renowned schools in the world. For some funeral directors in other countries, it's literally a tourist destination, right? I have a very good friend who's from Belgium who like, came and visited me at work and was like, wow, you work here. Um, but to me, it's just a building in Wheeling, Illinois. Um, so I went to school there. And um, uh, when I graduated, I um, went to work at a really busy funeral home. I was able to service uh, in this, in the, we're in a, um, the funeral home is in a city called Elgin, Illinois. They call it the city in the suburbs. It's like one of the top five most populous cities in Illinois. And they were the biggest funeral home there. So I was able to serve populations of all of all kinds, right? So um, I learned a lot there, but I was also got a master's degree. And when I finished it, I went back and I taught at Warsham. Um, I, do, I don't teach there anymore, but I am a professor of mortuary science now at Northeast Texas Community College. Um, and so that's kind of my trajectory in this. It all started out with me wanting to be a science educator. And I am a science teacher now of some very specific sciences, you know. So I, I think if you were going to ask someone, I think if you were going to to speak with somebody who wants to become a funeral director, mortician, you know, into the field, Two things that stood out to me from what you just said are uh, probably a, a good deal of empathy. I think you have yeah. to be, from this conversation, an empathic person, somebody who can place themselves in the perspective of of others during a very complicated time, and also somebody who has a, a, a firm, uh, rational mind who gets excited about the the STEM aspects of of what's happening and always, you know, continuing to. Um, want to improve and learn and you know it, it figure out the physical sciences of the uh of the industry is that accurate do you think yeah you can you can kind of sum it up um in one term this is what i usually say when somebody wants to get into it i tell them you have to have a good imagination mm -hmm. right because you have 
Like, as you mentioned, you have to be able to describe to families what their service is going to look like, your guidance. I mean, it's tough. You know, you don't want to be somebody who's like an empath where that's like a serious thing for you too much because there's something that we call compassion fatigue, where mm -hmm. if you keep taking on too much of other people's problems, like, believe me, in the funeral industry, yes, a lot of old people die, but there's a lot of like difficult deaths to deal with and families who are having a hard time. So if you find yourself as a person who's like, well, I just want to be empathic with people, like you might be headed to like damaging yourself. <clears throat> and then the other part of the imagination is, is that you are, you are tasked with learning anatomy, chemistry, biology, physics, pathology, and all that other stuff. And for a lot of people, especially since the degree is a two-year degree, they don't have a background in any of those things. They take the ones that we give them and maybe sometimes at the colleges, there's some prereqs, but you have to be able to understand those things in a context that makes sense for yourself. My podcast that I mentioned, I have a Instagram page that people follow and enjoy. Um, and really what it is, is an insight into my own imagination. And that's what I try to do as a teacher is like, here's how I imagine it. But like, you need your own imagination too. don't just go by what I say, because that will make you a better funeral director and a better embalmer if you can use your imagination in those ways. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Where can people find that podcast and Instagram page? What uh, what are all the different handles that uh, we can look okay. you up? Okay, so I have a long list of things that I do in funeral services. I already mentioned I'm a, um, a professor at Northeast Texas Community College. This school is completely, totally online. Uh, you have a requirement for clinicals, but it is a state school. Um, so if you are looking at an online school that is, um, that may be affordable to you, we are available in all 50 states. All right. Um, I'm also a consultant, um, for Frigid Fluid Company, which is kind of, is probably, I would say the most high profile on social media. So you can find us at, uh, Frigid Fluid on Instagram, Twitter. There's a Facebook page of Frigid Fluid. Um, I personally host the Funeral Science Podcast. You can get that wherever you get your podcast. That's kind of a short form um, podcast where I look at a couple of different aspects and then do a scripted review of, of what it is, what my research has shown. Um, and then for Frigid Fluid, one of my primary duties is I am the host of the Funeral Cast. And so that also has its own Instagram page and Facebook page. Oh, I should notice, note that the Funeral Science Podcast has its own Facebook page also. Um, so you can find me there. You can listen to the Funeral Cast. That one's a little bit different. It's more of an interview thing uh, where I get my friends and other people that I know that are in funeral service. And we look at some... Um, uh, pop culture and topics and things like that that are related to funeral service. So you kind of see those things through our eyes. Um, my Instagram uh, page is Mortracker. That's M-O-R-T-R-A-Q-R. -R um, and that is the name of an app that I co-created for mortuary science students. So I'm kind of all over whenever people ask me, like, where can we find you? Like, if you look up Ben Schmidt Funeral Service, like, you're going to find me. I'm pretty visible when it comes to that kind of stuff. And, you know, I run with a crew of educational funeral directors as well. So if you're um, interested in that, some other people that I would support for sure, if you are interested in knowing more about funeral service, 
um, Carrie Northy or Carrie the Mortician on YouTube is a good source. And then if you are looking for a podcast that's not mine, but I would recommend mine first, is undertaking the podcast. These guys were probably the, um, I would say they were the first podcast for funeral directors that was kind of a social podcast, wasn't centered on necessarily around business or anything, but a, a lot of like non-funeral directors listen to them and and things like that so that would be um kind of the other content that i would i would put out there as my um if you're looking for more funeral service information type people well thank you ben it's been fascinating i really appreciate the time you're welcome visit phantomastronaut.com for all of the different ways that you can help us to continue to create and I will see you out there.